Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, that sound you hear is Luke Dick lighting his pipe. And that's not a metaphor. That is not a metaphor. He is uh, lighting up a tobacco pipe, uh, which is uh, a cornerstone of uh, uh, what his, his creative process. Luke Dick is uh, one of the world's best songwriters. He's also a really, really excellent filmmaker, a philosopher, a smart guy. I've come to know him over the last couple of months. And uh, I think the world of this guy is a, a creative force. And um, his life story, which he's told the first big chunk of in a documentary that you guys should watch, uh, all you should watch, called Red Dog. And the soundtrack to Red Dog is coming out December 4th. I've heard some of the music. It's great. And um, in fact, uh, and just to tell you, Luke's written a number one record with Miranda Lambert, Bluebird. His record, uh, Polyester, from the soundtrack is exploding right now. And Miranda sings on that, too. And uh, man, that's a great track, Luke. You must be so happy with how it's being received. Yeah, man. You just kind of never know what's going to happen. And so you make things and do your best to care about them when you're making them. And then it's out of your hands once it's out of your hands. And then you get the response back and it goes out into satellites everywhere. And then you see what people say. And then you try not to think too hard about what people say because you're on to the next thing working on it right yeah i mean yes all the time you, you try to compartmentalize and move forward but here's what i was thinking about about both bluebird and polyester and i know in polyester you're the artist but Miranda's there with you and mm -hmm. what i was thinking i want to start here and then we're going to go backwards and but how do you think about like locking in to a unified tone with an artist? I'm always fascinated by that in the milieu in which you write, which is mostly country, even though I was just saying to somebody that in a weird way, you're, you have like the same stuff that Gamps and the Scritty Politi guy did with Pop Me. It's like you're not really making, when you and Miranda are together, straight country music. It's this other thing. And I'm wondering... What is, the th what is it that happens when the two of you are there? And how do you think about what it is that you're doing together? Um, it's a big question. Um, we got time, dude. Yeah, yeah, time. yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things about Miranda to me um, is that we weren't raised that far away from each other. And there's a kind of a creative kinship or something like that that we shared and we usually write with she and me and another great writer named Natalie Hemby. And Natalie always says, you guys have your own language. And so we grew up on similar music and similar um, lyrical um, inspirations, I guess. And it's not just lyrical. Um, I don't know. There's kind of a weird poetry, I think, to the way that people – create images where we're from and it allows um, certain things to come out in certain ways. And another great thing about her that I like that works well between the both of us is that we're not necessarily, um, we write narratively and there's a theme and a concept and all that, but the approach to me is this impressionistic um, approach to a title or, or a concept or something like that, where it's not necessarily, let me give you a dot to dot, um, a to B 
situation, there is the A to Z, and there's a million places in between that you can go that can contribute to that concept. And so that comes out in a manner of different furniture um, that we both feed on each other and Nat and Natalie too. It's sort of, it's, it's this thing. And when you get, I guess, I don't know, we've written a lot of songs and not all of them make records, but when you really sort of get the spirit uh, of something and get excited, you can really feel it and um, feel the inspiration happen. And, and you just want nothing more than to just keep the, the wheel moving of whatever that wheel is inside yourself. That's cranking out, words um that contribute to a song it's um it's kind of inexplicable to me the creative part of it because you're just saying okay that's the line that's the one or whatever and whenever you say that's the one i don't know what compulsion it is within you or how to codify that because it's some kind of artistic intuition that we all share as songwriters when we sit down but to me the song's not going to work unless you're all feeling that creative inspiration to say, Ooh, that's it. You know, that's a great line or, or that's a great title or that's a great melody, you know, and it's all, um, it, it's melody music and lyric that make it up. They don't exist alone, even though technically songs are the melody and the lyric together under a chord bed or whatever. But yeah, there, there's a, a sonic that happens too, as you're creating something. Well, it's the sonic, I think, that um so so yeah, for sure, Bluebird and Polyester don't come at a narrative idea and land in the way that we typically expect. And and but it's also to me, sonically, musically, you know, often when people say, Well, that's not that's not real country music, they're sort of slagging off on that idea of, of modern country music as being like um, either adult contemporary or 80s hair music, but that's not what I'm talking about. It feels to me like what, what you three people do together and when I hear, you know, when I hear Miranda's records and polyester, it, it's almost like you're not really hewing to, you are in, in, in a certain way, but you're not really hewing purely to the conventions of the genre, even though you're an expert in the conventions of the genre. There's kind of a life, I guess this is what I'm asking about, because I'm talking about unified tone. Mm. There's kind of like a life force underneath the music, right? Even if you didn't produce it, uh, I know, I guess polyester you did, but even Bluebird you didn't. Uh, uh, there's this life force in the sonic, in the music bed of what you guys do that's different, right? Well, yeah, not to, I guess, go back on what I said, but there is something to say about the way that you create melodies and in, in the in the chords that you choose and the way that you use rhythm and the way that you use meter and word to create something. And so that's just your own style, you know? And, and when I moved to Nashville the first time, um, that they have a system of charting songs in which it's a number system so that the, that the root is then called number one, right? And then, like, if it's a blues, it would be one, four, five. Yes, uh, and and it's related to the to the to the chord. And and so I'd been playing alt country and rock my whole life, and thinking that I created something new because you're in a new key or something like that, or you have a capo on. But it turns out that I tend to. It, 
make songs around certain chord progressions or certain relationships to notes and stuff like that. And it doesn't matter what the key is, even though the <laughs> key, the, even yeah. though the, the key changes the feeling of something. Um, and the, t- and then there's tempo and there's, r- there's counter rhythms against the tempo. So you could take the same chord progression in different keys with different counter melodies and rhythms, and it could create a whole new world. Um, and, but, but I do operate, um, it, in a in a certain chordal um world that speaks to me um and i'm not <clears throat> i started taking piano maybe like three or four years ago and i wanted to learn scott joplin and right. so the way that he follows out all of his melodies and his motifs are so beautifully um complicated and varied they're simple but then they also they, they there's a there's a there's a variation that's happening as the progression goes through. I learned a couple of Chopin songs. It's a similar thing that you pull up Chopin and it's like, oh, that's Chopin. You know what it is. Um, and I think that most people who write songs tend to do that, um, and so that becomes style. You know, you call it yes, you know, it's their style or something like that. And I can't not do it unless somebody else is directing. The melody altogether, or something like that, and so, and then I'm along for the lyrical ride, you know. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, but the one thing, and then we'll move off of this. But the one thing that um, strikes me is like when I hear a, a Dirk song that you co-wrote, or I hear an Eric Church song, they feel like Eric Church, or they feel like Dirks through your prism, but they feel like that. Whereas this stuff that you do with Miranda somehow feels like a third thing. It doesn't feel like Miranda's other records, it, and it doesn't just feel like Luke Dick. It, it, it feels like it exists in its own spot in the firmament. And I just think it's almost like you guys have your own band on a certain, that's, a certain way. Um, and I feel like that's the biggest compliment that you can take to a songwriting room is that you're actually creating something that couldn't be, that couldn't be made with anyone else. It's just us doing something and that we develop our own style. Um, um, sort of bouncing off each other, you know. It, I mean, it's the writing room. We would we, we just did a few sessions out at her ranch, and it's you, you're almost exhausted after three or four days. Not almost. You're absolutely exhausted after three or four days because of these highs and lows of writing. Yes, writing, yes. writing creativity, and writing different ideas and. And you're also, there's like this weird little depression that happens after because there's a vacuum of, I'm not making anything and you're not getting those endorphins that are pumping through your brain when you're all feeding off of each other, um, melodically and lyrically and, and what, and personally, you know, um, so there is something to this sort of magic collaboration that can happen, um, between people. And to me, I don't know, you know, it's like. You never know if it's going to happen again. If you're going to have that kind of a collaboration where everybody is clicking on the same, yeah. on the same uh, wavelength, so to speak, and um, that that you get such quality material that you're proud of, and you walk out of there and go, "Geez, is that going to happen again? Is was this it? You know, was this? Did I write my last great song? <laughs> no, I mean you. I feel. I mean yes. I feel that way every time I write a scene that works. I'm like, 
I and you get that particular kind of empty and you're just like, oh, fuck, <laughs> because though, because the stuff when it's that when it works like that for you, for the art, you know, whether the audience that's different, but you I find I'm sure I imagine you do and having just worked with you a little bit, I, I get the sense of it. Uh, sometimes you just don't even know where it comes from. And that's the thing that you don't know if you'll ever be able to summon again. It's like you're not working from your intellect. You're working from this other place and like you. I know that feel, and I'll suddenly wake up almost after writing a thing and I'll go like, what a scene, you know? And I'll, I'll be like, what? I didn't know that stuff that I had that person. Like, I don't know exactly how that happened. And you don't know how to call it, how to, you, you're going to be able to, but you don't know how to call it out of the ether again, right? You don't. Um, I had this, um, I don't know if I would call it an epiphany or something like that. Sure. Um, before I went out, to write again and we'd had such a great time the time before and you, and you want to be on your game and want to be um, contributing and the thought, you know, there's this anxiety that's happening um, of it, of, of the question of is, is it going to come again? And I, I had this meditation with a friend of mine and um, she was talking um, about a scene and, where they ride the dragons in Avatar or something, they're going to pick out dragons or whatever. And I said, yeah, that's a decent analogy. I said, but I've been watching um, The Crocodile Hunter, uh, Steve Irwin, with my son. He's obsessed with snakes, and I'm obsessed with snakes too. And so uh, Steve Irwin, he's, you know, going out to find the inland Taipan or whatever, you know. And and so he he goes out there, and, and he knows the topography, and he knows where to find these things. And he also knows what time of day, what they eat, all of these um, questions that you need to know to not accidentally find a Taipan. And so he's out there looking um, for this snake or another snake that might live on the side of a cliff or something like that. And so he goes and maybe he finds it, and maybe he doesn't. And then in he finds this taipan of course back then when you saw it it's just oh this guy's sort of shock value this snake is right next to his face and it licks him or whatever but he's feeling he's like a zen master with these snakes in this he uh, feels the body language of it once he catches them and he's like i could feel that she doesn't um that she is not going to bite me she's not she doesn't see me as a threat or anything that, and that led me to thinking this is similar to songs is you're sort of looking for signs, you know, you've got a phone full of ideas or whatever, and, and you know that there's something special about, I have this title called Bluebird, or I have this title called whatever. And it's like, there's something there to that. And here's a line that could lead you somewhere. And so then you go out into the topography um, that you know where songs could live, um, you know, and you and you know what they eat and you know what they um, you know where they sleep. And so you try to go out into the world and find those things. And maybe you come back empty handed, but all you can do is try and know the landscape a bit and hope that you come back with a Taipan of sorts. Um, and that and that kind of helped me. It's OK that you don't come back um, if you know where to look. And, yep. and you keep looking and then also, you know, the signs of where to look, then, then I think great things can happen. Um, so long as you keep your eyes and your ears open and you pay attention. Yeah. Being prepared to be open, alert in the moment, and then having done enough work that you can on your 
for me, you know, doing enough work to get yourself in a state of flow so that your anxiety doesn't take over in a way, right? That's um, right. And then there's the excitement, you know, that's a whole new set of anxiety when it is happening and you don't want to blow it, you know, and just blow through a verse because you had some rhymes that worked or words that worked, you know, you're really trying to serve it. So one of the things about being a country music songwriter is, you know, you're much like when a screen, you know, when I, when Dave and I were hired to write Oceans 13, we knew who we were writing these lines for. And so that meant George talks a certain way, right? And, 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 and Rusty talks a different way. I mean, you know, and Danny and Rusty talk different ways and um, Linus talks a different way. And so you're, you're aware that you're not just writing it for yourself. You're actually writing it for these people to use their instrument. So how much of yourself, and then within that, you sneak yourself into it as a screenwriter. Yeah. But how, how much of yourself is in these songs? And then how do you synthesize the commercial and the personal? And I know like with polyester, originally it was considered too personal. So can you just talk about that whole idea? As long as you want to talk, just talk about that whole idea. Sure. Um, I used to not think about artists at all when I wrote songs. And that was a commercial mistake. Um, because there are sometimes artists have um, just musically, rhythmically things that they can sing. I mean, not even getting to the lyrical piece of it, that there is, there's a, they have an, you know, a, a one octave range or, and it's between this note and that note. Um, and so what you need to have something in that ballpark and then there's a rhythmic range, you know, too many dotted eighth notes. It's, it's just overwhelming or something, you know, you got to stick to the eighth notes or something like that. Um, and so that is a consideration that you just don't know, um, coming into a market, so to speak. Um, and so you have to figure those things out if you're going to have anything to, that could serve someone else's career unless um, what you have is something that they want to develop, um, which is less likely, I guess. Um, but um, lyrically, um, I've just always um, taken my own approach to a song and I've had enough people in my life be encouraging that, oh, that's really good even before you have any commercial success, you really have to have faith that whatever it is that you're doing, um, if it's different, that it can work, even though it's not what's working right now, you know, Oh, this isn't what's trending or, or whatever. So you, so you have to believe in it. Um, and that to me, it, it was been a long road there and you have to have faith, you know, that, what it is that you're doing is something worth doing that can offer um, somebody else um, who's going to deliver the song something, you know, that they don't have already. With Polyester, it was a weird one um, because I had been watching uh, the Roosevelt's, the Ken Burns documentary, and there were um, you know, the, 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 te the sort of the history of, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and FDR and Eleanor 
and these timelines of people and how they developed as kids in this this highly uh, aristocratic lifestyle. And it was just that part of it struck me so much, uh, sort of the child of an aristocrat and what that looks like, which is so far away from how I was raised, you know, right. it's like, well, there are these nannies or there's this, this, and then you're going to go, you can go do whatever you want. You can sort of stuff animals all your life. And we have people to yeah. help you do that and, de- and develop. Um, and I just thought when Chris Dubois, he wrote that song with me and I had the idea, I said, you know, you might wear leather, but you're made of polyester. And I didn't really have anything else other than that. And so we we kind of took he and I like to take off from the verse. A lot of people like to start with the chorus and make sure that they have something there. Um, right. And so we took off um, backwards from that line um, and come about it in a weird way of making something of yourself um, and turning into something that is um, um, not blue it's blue collar but you you're upper middle class or or whatever um after you make it and what that feels like it doesn't feel like the aristocracy you know it's like you're still connected to all these people who still may not know how to how to afford a new air conditioner or or the roof blows off their house and they don't know what they're going to do um you know i had the same carpet it was in my bedroom. I didn't have any, you know, like any insulation in my bedroom growing up and I had a box fan that I, you know, made a little plate for that I could put in the window. We got a garage sale box fan. So it's, and it's like, there are people with harder lives than that, but it's, it's just looking back on that where, where I, um, it's so far removed from how I live my life. Now, if my car breaks, um, I call a mechanic to come get it because I need to be working on songs. I had a, I had a friend, Natalie Hemby called me one day and I'm like, what's going on? She said, uh, Oh, I'm having a bad day. You know, my tire, um, my tire blew out, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, she's like, I'm just down. I'm like, I said, so what? She's like, what? I said, so what? I said, you're rich. I said, call somebody, come pick that thing up. Huh. And go, huh. <laughs> go get a tire well, put on yeah. it. Well, you weren't, well, this is the thing, right? Your documentary, Red Dog, uh, is about basically you growing up, uh, your mother uh, left home at a young age, at 17, in a bad marriage, uh, or 16, right? 15. And then seven, yeah, right, 15, and then uh, uh, bad marriage and ended up. Uh, dancing in an adult in a strip club and uh, and you were born and she was still doing that and you largely grew up um, at this strip club you know knowing all those people and, and, and living there um, not living in the place but uh, this documentary shows a life that's you know the kind of life that most people who live it or many who live it would end up through no fault of their own they would it would defeat them I don't even want to say they let it defeat them. I would just say it would defeat them. And and you've talked about the fact that up until six, seven years ago, you were still not financially set in any way, stable. You didn't really have a lot of money, right? And right. Uh, why do you think your childhood didn't defeat you? And then what do you think the gifts of, I mean, the documentary is a great job of showing how you worked through it and, and who your mother was in it within it, but... How did it set you up in a way, the positive side of it, talk about both sides, but 
to kind of be able to walk into a room with strangers and produce something in a short time and, and connect, you know, but I'm really, so that's one side of it. And then how did you not sort of like, how did you transcend it? Learn to trust people, learn to rely on people on, you know, and, and given all the abandonment stuff that you went through. Sure. I mean, I do believe there's something akin to free will out there. Um, but my idea of free will and, and most people's idea of free will would probably be um, a lot different. Um, there are statistics involved. And right. it's if you don't have money, um, you your options and your environment around you is just not going to create, not going to allow you these little keyholes with which to, to move forward through something. And you're not a Roosevelt, you know, you, you don't have, um, people to look up to. There's no, or there's no one in your family that has a college degree. There's nobody out there, um, really moving up, um, or sort of socially mobile or anything like that. Um, and I, I, on and then there's this other thing. There's just the luck of temperament, um, that some people get and some people don't get. Um, and i honestly feel like I would came into the world with a temperament, um, that liked other people that, um, I was kind of wanted to please my mom. And once she got out of that lifestyle, when I was four or five years old, she was a hard ass. Um, she wouldn't let me go do things that my friends could go do. Um, she harped on me and told me that I was going to go to an Ivy League school and all of this, even though um, <laughs> knowing what I know about um, uh, colleges and entrance entrance exams and and all of this, it, it really was a very slim chance of me going to an Ivy league school, um, because of the requirements and all of this. But, um, it was enough to get me into a private liberal arts school and get an education and move on. And so you have this, this sort of temperament that just you came with of wanting to make sure that you do right by your mom. Um, and it's speaking to you all the time. And, um, along with a mother who's going to grind on you and tell you what you need to be doing with your life. And it, and then also a mother who's also gregarious and loves people. And so you see that, um, and that becomes a part of you. And so you're excited to see people. You are, um, excited to engage with others. Um, and there's also this sort of brazen, um, non-subtlety uh, of who she is that sort of just seeps into you either through genetics or socialization, you know, that um, allows you to to be in a room. And she was a showman, you know, she was a showman her whole life. So um, but, there's that. That all that all makes sense. But even after the you're, you were age four and five, your documentary does not stop there. You're you're. Um, is that tamping out the? Yeah, tamping sorry. Out the... I'm a little close to you there. Hold on, to get a little further away. <laughs> That's just tamping the the, the to get get in dump. the get in the old out and bringing in the new. Yeah, the old tobacco out, and then the new goes in there, and you got to tamp that down. Yeah, that's great. Um, I love it. Uh, but but you have these different men who come through, and unlike most 
unlike many times the way that story goes, instead of you immediately resenting them, because I think there's something about what sets you up to be so good at, at this collaborating thing where you have to walk into a room and find some something as you became attached to these guys, it seems like, to a few of them. Yeah. And to the families that they sort of brought. You know, there's this amazing thing about the brother you had for a couple of years. Yeah. And um, how do you think that affected you, this sort of connections that were real to you that then became attenuated and sometimes broke? Um, I mean, obviously, it's not. this is not a hot take. Um, fatherhood is a huge deal. Um, and... Yeah. I didn't really get to know my biological dad until um, I was – I don't have memories of him until I was four or five. And it was this very sporadic visitation that I had with him. Um, but my mother married – she had a boyfriend that I attached to, and which seemed like forever. But in retrospect, it was a year, which is forever in a three-year-old's life. And then she married another – bartender who was kind of a union guy working for the electricians union and he worked for AT&T for years and um she married him and that was sort of my formative father for 10 years from age 4 to 14 and he was this sort of um I would say there was something classic about the way that he fathered in in which um it wasn't uh um, it, it was, he was so present and solid. Like I'm going to go, I get up and go to work at five. I'm home by four every day. Um, I'll pick you up from practice. You need to be playing baseball. Um, I might have time to throw with you. I might not mm. feel like it. Um, let's watch this show, whatever. But he's, there's a definite presence, you know, and, and it was funny. I was writing a song and Miranda goes, I love it when you get that look on your face. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she said this, uh, the the little piece of skin between your eyebrows, you know, it furrows in a certain mm. way. And uh, I remember him furrowing his brow in a way that created these two lines on, huh. you know, at the top of his nose. And I always liked that about him when he was um, concentrating or he was mad. And I got in the mirror one time and I would make that face until did the same wrinkle that his wrinkles did, you know? Um, and then it became a part of my gesticulation, I guess. And, um, kids do all sorts of things and look up to you in ways that you can't imagine. Yes. But, th but then after that, my mother married another guy who I really love. And is this very warm, sweet, loving guy who was musically really encouraging he got me into the oklahoma blues society and we would go and watch blues players play all the time and um but then in college i i really looked after my my professors as as surrogate fathers all over the place and would they would support me one of them even um paid for my last semester of my master's i offered to sell him a guitar he's like i'm not going to take your fucking guitar um, I'm going to give beautiful, you, yeah, man. I'm going to give you $3,000 to pay off your call and you pay me back when you can. Um, and that was, um, did you, did you get him something nice when you became, uh, famous? Well, I, I contributed he's running, he's running for, uh, I think house Senate in Illinois. And I contributed to his campaign. That's cool. <laughs> Good. Good. I'm sure he appreciated that. 
Do you think that like the, what you learned about, because it's obvious watching the documentary, I have so many, people should go watch Red Dog because all these men are so clearly drawn in the documentary and you so understand the way in which they helped shape you and the, how you how how the interactions with your mom and them mattered so much to you, how, how tight you were holding on and how painful it must have been when they were gone, but in certain ways. But do you think watching how people fought and loved and left influenced the direction of your life to you becoming a writer? Like, did you notice that you were logging stuff somehow as this was all going on or did it all come later? I didn't notice it until, um, I was in college really that I cared about stories. Um, and there was, you know, some kind of a short story, um, publication, at the university and i remember telling a story um about this guy named lefty his name was lefty Wright. (laughs) (laughs) awesome and he was kind of a gnarly looking character reminded me of um the green lantern a little bit um you know this sort of um blonde hair with a goatee and he was missing his left arm. That's why they called him Lefty. He got it knocked off driving down the road. Somebody knocked perfect. his arm no, off. Perfect. His yeah, perfect. Shoulder. It's this nub. And I remember I used to catch grasshoppers out in the country and put them in jars and give them names. And I remember he pulled up in the driveway one time and he, he was kind of a formidable character. He hung with the, with the community drunk and, and it was a, generally a, a, a contentious relationship with my family because we had a a, a a gulch that washed into their land and they were always accusing us of putting stuff in there that would wash onto their land which we never mm. did anyway it was f- fucking weird but um the 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 guy he said what do you got there and i had a just giant grasshopper never met this guy before and he <laughs> and i'm like five I said give me that thing and he took it out of my hand and he bit the head off of this Jesus. grasshopper. Yeah, Jesus Christ. I know. And then just chews it up and like looks at me. And and I just don't know what to do. And my dad comes out and is like, you know, what the fuck do you want? And <laughs> I remember he said, if you ever come back here accusing me of something, I'm going to chain you to that fucking tree and I'm going to beat you with a two by four. <laughs> so he told this guy. <laughs> It's, so so and, and the film is really kind of full of these ambiguous characters because you're like, oh God, dad's got my back, you know, but God, what a what a way to address someone, you know. This is not how I address my neighbors. <laughs> well, yeah, no, even your relationship, even your relationship with Tiny with Tiny in the film. Is that his name? The the Tiny. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. Even your relationship with Tiny in the film is unbelievable, and what's left unsaid also is uh, sure, sure. You don't really know what you know what his relationships are um, with his family, and I'm sure, surely there's um, you know um, kinks in in that deal. But it, it's um, do, that's do you the- think do you think seeing those people and the way that they survived and being around the sort of you know, they crafted these lives for themselves. As you talk about how they made their own kind of families too, because they didn't have families. And do you think, cause I was thinking about you having all this talent, Luke, and, and knowing how smart you were, like you, uh, you, it doesn't seem like there was a time you really doubted that you were a smart person. And, but you, you had a long time before you could earn a living making music and you were teaching philosophy. And 
were you ever, did you ever think about giving up? Did you just feel like, well, I'm going to eke out a life, whatever that means? I mean, you had to raise your first child uh, when you were not in a situation where you had a lot of extra money. So what did all that yeah, feel I mean, like I, to you? I didn't, it, it, you, you sort of come in to, to music or something, you come into your sense of self or something in your twenties. And there's this naivete that people are going to give a fuck about what you're saying or what you're doing. And you don't have the realization that there's a million people who want to do what you are trying to do. And, and you don't have any idea of how special or not special you really are. Um, or ha how special or not special you could actually become. And so you're hanging on to, again, hanging on to, to, to encouragement from your family or hopefully some insiders, you know, that can have something um, to do, to do um, with your success. Um, but I mean, I was doing maintenance in these high rise buildings when I was going back to school, once I had a kid and just the way people treat service people, um, I, I remember really feeling a sense of resentment. Um, and I don't feel, I don't dislike people naturally. I'm, I'm naturally want to like people and have a, a good relationship. And so you're, you know, some administrative assistant is talking to you like you're the scourge of the fucking earth. Um, and you need to go fix the plumbing or whatever. Mm. And I'm just like, well, who are you, you know, that you can talk to somebody like that, you know? Um, and, and th there is, I don't think it's your better angel. Um, but there is something inside of you that wants to prove all those people wrong and say, fuck you. Um, you, are, you can do, um, you can stay doing whatever it is that you do and bossing people around and looking down at your nose at people and I'm going to I'm going to go do something great, um, and that sounds harsh coming out right now. But there, I mean, there were times that I felt like that. You know, any time that you get rejected, and there's such a multitude of rejection that you have to go through in order to um, have any kind of success in something like creativity. You know, you're and sort of um, asking to 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 be, to go fishing for a living, essentially something that everybody would love to do. Um, and so getting there is a, it is a difficult place of a million no's. And, and there were times when I, when I wanted to give up and I moved to New York and said, I'm just going to get a PhD because clearly I don't know how to make it in commercial music. And, and then things started changing, you know, and slowly they change. And then, you know, you turn back How did, when you got rejections, Luke, like, so I understand that people could fire you up by being dicks, uh, right. assholes or whatever, right? But how, when, how did you process rejection and failure? So eventually you left and went to New York and I guess thought it was permanent, but, but something kept you going. And, and, and yes, the encouragement of some people, but what was going on internally that let you learn how to place the rejection in a, in, in a spot that didn't overwhelm you. There's always some kind of a, to me, there was always been a sense of artistic growth. Um, Good. whether, yeah. whether that's, um, 
in New York, it became production. I've, I've always been interested in the production of music, and I produced things from a young age, even from the first band that I was in. I built a whole studio in a trailer house just to get um, to get the use of the equipment so that I could make a record. And, so, and then once studios became a home endeavor, um, I, I got them in my house and then met people who were making a living. And, and so then you can make music all by yourself. I, I, I never tried to cut people out of my process, but it's just so expensive to be able to go rent a studio, pay the musicians and all of that. And I played a little bit of everything and loved music enough to try to keep making something that was good and I guess competitive. Um, and so in New York, it was this sense of, I love music. I have this home studio I'm going to keep making things. And New York was such an inspiring place because of the breadth of people that you are constantly forced to encounter every day. And I really enjoyed it. I would play chess in the park and, um, and then there were people on your beat that you would see, you know, and so I would write songs about living in that environment. Um, that just seemed to like they had to, I had to make them, you know? Um, and I didn't care if I was going to be an adjunct professor the rest of my life on my days off, I was going to make music and I was going to, would you send the music out? Would you try to get it at that time in your life? Was your ambition songwriting yet or no, it was becoming an artist at that time. time It was becoming an artist. I didn't know, I didn't know any big time, um, artists that I could show a song to or collaborate with, or even know the, really the first thing about collaboration, that I, that I do now. So, um, I would collaborate with my filmmaking friend, um, Casey Pinkston, who made the red dog with me. He was a filmmaker and he had a little DSLR camera. So I got one too, um, and started making little mini documentaries and then making videos for my own music and then seeing if we could make that move, um, in any way. And we also did these, we would direct, um, like advertising for web um web um commercials or whatever for big brands or whatever and and we actually made a good living um piecing it together that way and then i would do the music for it so we were both kind of swiss army knives in that regard where we were making everything and i was like oh this could be a living um but it wasn't until um, I signed with my current publisher that he said, you need to be in rooms with people um, that you can contribute to that are making waves in, you know, in a, in a genre that um, that's what's going to move your career along. And he was right. And also I was, I've never been the most business savvy, at least, especially then I wasn't the most business savvy person um, in terms of, here's where you could spend time and things would change for you in terms of um, commercial success or whatever. Um, New York is weird because there's just buildings everywhere and you don't know what the fuck people are doing in the buildings or who can help you and who (laughs) can't help you and stuff like that. So you just chase down whatever you can, or, or in my case, just operated in this creative vacuum, you know? And then did you move to Nashville to start doing the songwriting? Yeah, um, I I had some friends in LA, and I actually 
um, would travel around and just be around people who made a living at music. And they made, you know, there was people who made music for commercials and I did that for a while and did pretty well at it. But it, it just somehow it felt like there was something bigger, I guess, or, and, and that sounds a little bit, um, you know, diluted, or, you know, some kind of no. grandiosity. It was like, I can't, I don't, who cares if I make the biggest ketchup ad ever? Um, I want to make songs that I love that mean something to me that mean something to other people. And it's hard to imagine doing that, um, through, a you know, a Hilton ad, you know? Um, and, I, I and I'm and so did you quit doing that stuff or did you ju- like what happened? How did I it-, just, it just phased out? You know, I started writing. My schedule started filling up. People, my public, the publisher that I signed with starts filling up my calendar with other writers, and then all of a sudden, an artist comes in, and then a bigger writer, and then the bigger writers like you, and then you get to write with the bigger writers, and then the bigger writers bring you in with another artist, and then all of a sudden, you have these. Not all of a sudden, but after a few years, if you deliver um you you get to remain in the room and and keep deliver so long as you keep delivering you know? how long was it till you got your first real cut mm. how long what uh, <laughs> no how like- old was that um i guess i was probably 35 or something like that 34 35 when i got a cut on a major label record and that wasn't those they didn't, um, it wasn't like they were on the radio and, but they were part of that artist's career songs that they played, you know, night after night and that people loved them. And so that's a little something. And then yes, Eric church came over and I had a couple of ideas or I had one idea and then he had another and we wrote them both and they both became, um, hits. And that was a big, a big deal when people are recognizing you and you're getting hits and they're up for song of the year and, you know, the, the ACM, the Academy of Country Music was up for song of the year. And so your first run out of the gate, people are um, espousing it as something both commercially successful and creatively successful. Take, take me into that moment. So I don't I don't know if you know I, I, how big an Eric Church fan I am, but my son and I listen to those first two, the big Eric mm-hmm. Church albums. Over and over again. I mean, Sinners Like Me is like everything I want in a certain kind of song. It just kills me, right? Yeah. So so what is it? Like, you know, and, and he had carved his own place in the fucking country music firmament in a way. There's nobody else doing exactly what Eric Church is doing. What was it like when he was going to show up at, at your house? Were you... Uh, were you nervous at all? Were you cool? Were, what, what did that day, that day that you guys wrote two songs, you didn't know each other before that? Well, we had met, you know, there was like a number one party for him. And so I had went to that and we'd met and, and I just said, I look really, you know, I really look forward to being creative, doing something creative with you. And he's like, I'm looking forward to it. And so there was a, a kind of a nod there yes. of, of like, you know, you, you, you're the young guy, so you don't, want to um act like you know everything ever yes. really if, even if you're the old guy in the room yes um and so it's like just just to say that that's all i wanted to say is that i'm um i want i'm i'm excited about being created with you and and so he came over um and so i had met him one time but of course you're nervous you don't know what's going to happen and <clears throat> he shows up and and 
the rooms are at their best when everybody's respecting each other. You know, you're you're listening, yeah. and if somebody wants to wait and and feels like there's somewhere else to dig, you have to let that happen. Um, and so. I was trusting him. He was trusting me. We were trusting our other writer, Jeff Hyde, who's fantastic and has a, a ton of, he's in Eric's band and really, really humble and brilliant guy. And so we are all trusting each other and, and leaning on each other. Um, and then somebody gets hot in the room in terms of yeah. the lyrics starts rolling out of somebody. And, um, and, and that's how it worked. You know, we were, we were all ping ponging off of each other. Um, you know, sort of that must have just felt amazing. And then did Eric sing down the work tape right there of both he, songs? He said, I like what you do. He said, I want you to make a make a recording of the of this stuff and I want to see what you do with it. And wow. and so I turned him into him and the the demo of Kill a Word is pretty much like it sounds. Um I came down the Jay Joyce's studios yeah. a block a block away from my house. He's like, I need I want you to come play guitar on this. I need your guitar. And so I just walked down. I didn't even put it in a case. It was my uncle's guitar that he, too that, cool. he, that he gave me. I just walked down the street and played the part and sang a little bit. And that was done. The other song I did a demo for, and it sounds nothing, nothing like what the recording of it was. I mean, what I did sounds good, but I was really happy to hear what Jay had done. It was funny. We were in the studio, and they were they had kind of cut something that was rough and I was like, Oh man, I don't know. This does not moving me. Yeah. You know, and, and Eric looked at me and he goes, it's all right. We'll make sure, we'll make sure it's good. Don't worry. <laughs> when it, when it was on, when it was, uh, and did you sing the demo or did Eric sing the demo? I sang the demos on, on those. He, he said, I, I like what you do. I want to hear what you do. Oh, that's um, super cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you that, know, that's uh Shane McAnally told me that when he first heard, John Cougar, John Deere, John 316, by when Keith cut it, he thought Keith had ruined it. Oh, really? He's, he said that on the podcast. Yeah, he's, he goes, you know, I, I, he goes, when we wrote that song, I knew we'd written a, he goes, I just texted it. As soon as we wrote that song, he's like, I texted it to Keith and it's the fastest anything ever happened. Keith wrote me right back. I'm cutting it. Two weeks later, Keith cut the song. Three weeks later, it's in my, he sends it back to me and it's going to be the first single. And he's like, and I hear it and I go, fuck they ruined it it's not commercial anymore <laughs> and and he wasn't playing around either like you know obviously like that was like the biggest song of the fucking year but he like it must be a weird thing when something's in your hands like that and comes from you and then it's shifted even a slight bit so i said to shane i go send me your original version and he did and of course it's basically the same record you know what i mean yeah. it's very little but he could hear it different as i'm sure you could hear it producers different. you know it's like it's in totally in their hands once it gets out of, out of your hands and i'm a producer myself and i do yes. things and so you you but but jay joyce is somebody that i like fully wholeheartedly trust with songs um that it's not going to go in and come out worse well, yeah, than, than it right. went into his studio it's oftentimes get most of the time it's going to come out way better than you had imagined which is an awesome the market yeah. of a producer and and it was weird because i was in new york and I, and i'd only met i met this one hit songwriter um steve McEwen is his name and he lives in new york he's a british guy and we wrote a few songs and he's like have you heard this and he played me eric church's um uh smoke a little smoke um mm. 
And it, it is such a wild recording. Um, I said, is this what the fuck they're doing in Nashville now? Because when I left, it was none of this. This is like bombastic and, um, and, and creative and sonically um, so fresh to me. And, at the, and Eric was just coming on the scene and he hadn't really broken when I left. And I was like, well, if, if that's going on in Nashville, then I actually have a chance. You know, um, but the truth is, no, that's not what was going on in Nashville. That was a very special case. That was a song that went to number 15, but it meant so much. Songs that go number 15, people don't know this, even though it doesn't go number one, it could be such an impactful song for an artist. So an impactful song for the people who listen to it, but it just never made it up the chart. It can bond you with your audience forever. Of course, it can make your, with your crew, crew, with your group of people. Uh, Springsteen, no doubt about it. Spring, yeah, Springsteen. You know, he well, he had one number one with somebody else or something like that. Um, oh I yeah, I know that whole. I could run you through the every yeah. the entire history of that. But yeah, um, uh, Manfred Mann. You know, blinded by the light, and it, it wasn't a number one. Uh, 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 but it was a big. It was a record that mattered to people, and it kind of was one of the things that started to be able to break him. Um, but. Uh, when if you've never watched those two documentaries of the, of Born to Run in Darkness on the Edge of Town, they're great. Yeah. He, it's him making the records. Have you seen him? You'd really like. I, him. I haven't seen him, but he's such a compelling guy. When I see, I saw his storytellers. It's so amazing. Oh, Luke, you'll everything. you'll really relate though. These two docs because they had cameras in there, and like it was all or nothing for them. They were if if Born to Run album didn't work, it was over, and and he knew it. And you see a guy coming up against that exact moment when it's all going to happen or nothing's going to happen. It's really inspiring as an artist to watch that documentary. But here, when I started this podcast, one of the things that I was, I found really animating and I wanted to ask certain people about was I always say the big moments are not only the moment when you, when, when failure happens and how do you pick yourself up, but when success happens, sometimes that adds different new challenges too. And I'm wondering how you handled becoming the independent in demand person, like how you kept your equilibrium. You know, you had so many years of trying and then suddenly you're the fucking hot thing in town. You know, you, you just had this huge number one this year, but you've been now this big, hot songwriter for five or six years. And how did that shift? How did you process that whole differentiation? I know all the good stuff about it, but has any of it been hard? Um, I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, you you never, to me, I don't ever feel like I'm done yet. Um, that there's, there's still songs to be written. Um, and I don't know what they are yet. Um, but I feel like they're out there to be found. And that's, you know, you go through these, um, ups and downs of finding something and the ups, the awards and all that stuff and getting a number one is great, but honestly finding the song to me is, um, it, it's more the triumph. The triumph happens on the day that you write something to yes. me. Um, and I don't, that's not to say I don't want something to be a number one hit because that's what I live and die by essentially. And, and that's important. And, but that if you can find something like that, did you find something that you love on the day and then it can also translate into commercial success? That's the benchmark to me. And that's what I'm always looking for is something that I care about that when I have to go out and play a songwriter um, round or 
go out into the world and play a song for someone that I can play something that I'm proud of. And, and, and people say that song really got me through this or this song yes. really related to me in this way. That's what I'm looking for. And that doesn't feel done yet. Um, and even after the success, the initial success with Eric, I always felt like well, I, I'm just getting into this. You know, there's like, I'm just finding my way around lyrics um, that that means something to me. And then also this Venn diagram of them fitting over the public, fitting over the artist who would want to sing that um, and finding that sweet zone, I guess, that every, that your, your own creativity aligns with the artist, aligns with the people yes. and out there and the radio programmers and all that. And it's, and it's difficult and there is no, codification of it other than you need a chorus um <laughs> you know that, that works um but yeah that you know f f the the fear of failure never really leaves you and but to me the fear of failure is <sighs> not finding a song that's worth singing you know um there's a lot of times that i write songs and i'm in the middle of it and thinking god i just don't have the passion for this song and thinking, what am I supposed to do for the next three hours? These other two creators are here leaning um, and wanting this to work, and I want it to work too. And so you have to tell yourself something, and it's like this is this is time for me to work my creativity um, to find the rhymes to get this song working. And the more you flex on meter and rhyme and melody it doesn't matter if it's in the in in the container of a mediocre song um you're you're flexing for the times that you really need to flex when you have something great and things are working um and the more that you flex the more that your your creative person is going to be there to show up for you when you need it to yeah, man, that's a perfect place to end on. Uh, Luke Dick's soundtrack to Red Dog will be out December 4th, right? Is that correct? That's right. Uh, and uh, Luke, man, uh, it's such a pleasure. Uh, I'm, whenever you text me about a book or a movie or something, I'm always <laughs> happy. It's it's never a pain in the ass. I'm always oh, I so love it. I happy. Love it. To... It's good to have that kind of a collaboration. I really yeah. am, am happy that we've crossed paths here. Me too, man. You're great. And, uh, and I'm just so happy that polyester's taken off. Uh, it's I, when the first time I heard it, I was just like, Oh fuck, he did it. Like that's <laughs> kick ass, man. You know, I, uh, you just, uh, just rooting so hard. So folks go find Luke. He's uh, on Twitter, somehow not verified on Twitter, but it's him, which it's crazy <laughs> that he's not verified on there. Go and he's on uh, the Instagram and stuff and go watch, watch red dog. And, uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. You can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com. Don't send me lyrics or scripts because I will just delete them. All right, everybody. Uh, talk to you soon. Thanks a lot.